Hey, normally when I start off a message, I always try to come up with like some catchy introduction. I'll start off with a joke or a story or something to grab your attention. But when we start off with a romantic music video like that, and I give you the big warning, you know, this message is rated biblical. Whenever I like start out with that on the front end, I don't even need an introduction, you guys. I could just jump right into the Bible and you guys will be interested because we are talking all about sex from a biblical perspective. Now, I'm, I'm going to start in the most boring way possible. I'm actually going to start with a quote, a quote from a guy named Bertrand Russell, who's a very famous atheist from the last century. And he wrote a book entitled, why I'm not a Christian. And he outlines a bunch of reasons why he's not a follower of Jesus. And in that particular book, he writes this sentence. The worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude towards sex. Now, it might surprise you to hear that in some ways, I agree with Mr. Russell. There are some ways in which the church throughout history and even into modern times has taught both unhelpful and unhealthy views of the body of sexuality, and everything in between. Now, I certainly wouldn't say this is the worst part of the Christian religion, but it can be quite bad if the church doesn't have a biblical understanding of the body and of the joining of bodies together. But let's be real here. It's not just the church that is teaching and proclaiming unhealthy ideas about sex. Everywhere you look in our world, sex is present. It's prevalent. Our whole culture is constantly talking about sex. They're dreaming about sex. They're singing about sex. They're chasing after sex. They're even selling sex. It is all over, always in front of our eyes. And yet, despite the fact that sex is so prevalent in our culture, it seems like nobody is really doing sex very well. It seems like whether we look to the church or we look to the culture, there seems to be this, I don't know, break in between what sex could be and what it often ends up as. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about sex every single morning. I had so many people say to me in the weeks leading up to this message, are we really allowed to talk about that? Are you allowed to show a little romantic video like that on the screen? Yes, we should be talking about it as the church. And so we're going to, and we're going to do it in a way that I hope is helpful to you, in a way that is surprising to you and hopefully refreshing as well. What we want to do is we want to confront the extremes that tend to happen, whether you're looking in the church or in the culture. There are extremes that people go through or go to when it comes to the subject of sexuality, and we want to confront them both head on. So what we'll talk about is the fact that on one hand, and we'll, we'll kind of dig into this and unpack it this morning, on the one hand, the church at one extreme, tends to look at sex as gross. We're just like, oh, it's gross. It's like, you know, not really spiritual. It's not healthy. It's not helpful. God is looking down at you in your marriage, and he's like, shame, 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 you know? And then on the other side, in our culture, but this is present in the church as well, we tend to look at sex as God. It's the most important thing. We order all of our steps around having it and getting it, right? Right? 
Instead of going to these extremes, I want to encourage you to do, as I so often do, I want to encourage you to find a third way, not to go in the middle. The gospel doesn't tell us to go in the middle of extremes. Instead, it tells us to find a brand new way to look at these things altogether. So rather than seeing sex as gross, and rather than seeing sex as God, we want to redeem sex as a gift from our creator. And so over the next four weeks, man, we're going to start theological and then we're going to get real practical. By the time we get to the fourth week, we're not even going to let kids in the room. We're going to force them out then because we're going to be talking about real, raw, honest questions that you guys have. Now, listen, we need to address these unhealthy extremes. We need, as the church, to confront them head on. The world around us and people who are sitting in our congregations every single day, they are dying to know the truth about sex. They need to know what it should be for and what it shouldn't be used for and how God wants to bless it and how God wants to use it as an agent of transformation in your life, believe it or not. Now, I know a couple personally who young, got married, and like every other couple in the world thought on our wedding night, I should pause real quick, I'm not talking about Amber and I, I should just make that clear. This is not like some veiled reference to my sex life. Um, I genuinely know a couple, like I could give you his phone number. He and his wife, young, engaged, went to church, got married, wedding night rolled around, and they couldn't consummate. She was just too scared, too nervous, you know, that sort of thing. And so he was like, okay, cool, no big deal. You know, that happens sometimes if you go through premarital counseling, we'll talk about that. That sometimes happens. But one night turned into a week and then a week turned into a month and then months turned into several months and they still weren't able to consummate their marriage together. As you can imagine, when you're newly married, that creates a lot of stress, a lot of fear, a lot of frustration for both people in the relationship. So finally, they decided to go see a counselor. And after they started working through some things, the, the, the wife finally admitted that she was struggling because she was raised in an incredibly conservative church that told her for years and years and years that sex is dirty and it's dangerous and you need to be so careful with it. And because she was indoctrinated with that for so long that when the church finally said, now go have fun, she couldn't do it. And she said, I'm just having so much trouble believing that this is okay. Now, I wish I could tell you that this couple worked through their issues in counseling, but they never could. Partially because of what the church had taught her and them, they were never able to, to get over that. And so they ended up divorced not too long after. And the sad thing is, you guys, they're not the only couple I know like that. I do a lot of pastoral counseling and we'll get in. If you come to me and say, man, we're having issues in our life. We're gonna talk about communication. We're gonna talk about finances, but we're also gonna talk about sex life because the problems in our lives often manifest themselves in physical ways. And so I talk to couples all the time. And when we get to the, the sex life, it's like, ah, oh, something's not right. Something is off. It may not be as extreme as the couple that I just mentioned a few minutes ago, but I can't tell you how many Christian couples in particular still have fears, questions, and even shame when it comes to their bodies and their sexuality with their spouse. I mean, Christian couples often wonder, like, am I allowed to enjoy this? 
Am I really supposed to enjoy what's going on? Is that okay? Are we only supposed to be doing this for the purposes of making babies? Like it shouldn't be for pleasure. It should only be for procreation. Is that the only reason? Is sex unspiritual? What does God think about all of this? I know too many Christians, maybe even some of you, and you think at best God looks at sex as a necessary evil. It's like something that we have to put up with, but it would just be better if it weren't a reality, right? The funny thing is, when you look to the scripture, you find out that the Bible says nothing like that at all, okay? The idea that sex is gross does not come from God, and it does not come from the Bible. And I'm going to prove that to you here in just a moment. Where does that idea come from then? Where is the thought in the church, outside of the church even, that sex is bad, it's dirty, it should be like, you know, just kept quiet and we shouldn't ever talk about it. Well, there are a few places that we get this idea from. Number one, the church rarely talks about sex. Do you understand how weird it is that people would actually ask me, are we allowed to talk about that? That's proof that the church doesn't engage with this subject well enough, that people actually believe we're not allowed to have this conversation. That's crazy. And when the church talks about sex, we tend to talk about it only negatively, don't we? The church's teaching on sex tends to be don't, 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 don't. Don't lust after your friend's wife. Don't masturbate. Don't look at pornography. Don't, 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 don't. And that's the extent of it. Part of the reason that so many people in our churches have an unhealthy view of sex is because of the church. When I was a teenager, You know, youth groups are notorious for this. I went to a great youth group growing up. And yet, it's like the only teaching on sex I ever seemed to get was don't. It's like the youth pastor basically told me sex is dirty and vile and gross, so save it for the one you love. You know, it just doesn't make sense at all. And yet, that's kind of what was communicated to me. When I first started going to church, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know anything about anything, really. And it shocked me to learn that Christians actually venerated Mary because she was a virgin, you guys. As a teenage boy, I was like, no, thank you. Why in the world would you celebrate that? I mean, I'm hormonal and I'm surrounded by all the media and friends and all those things. And I'm like, why would anybody celebrate being a virgin? And so I got the wrong idea about sex and sexuality from the church. Here's the problem. In church, we tend to focus only on the boundaries that God sets for sex and not on the blessings that God promises on healthy sex. We need to both engage with the boundaries and the blessings that God says are uh, present with a healthy sex life. So that's one reason. A second reason is we live in a hypersexualized culture, don't we? Like, hypersexualized guys. Sex in our world has become a commodity. It is something that is bought and sold or it's used to buy and to sell. And that makes it cheap. That makes it so common that it just seems, I don't know, plastic, fake, gross might be a good word to use. No lie, I saw a commercial recently where they were using sex to sell broccoli. It was like a woman all seductively eating a stock of broccoli. Broccoli is the least sexy of food, you guys. 
They failed miserably. It didn't work at all. We live in this hypersexualized culture where we're surrounded by sex. And so too often the church thinks if everybody else is talking about it, the way to counter that is to stop talking about it. Can I tell you that's ludicrous? The way that we engage with it is to talk openly and biblically about sex, not to hide from it, not to pretend that it's not happening, but to help people to understand sex as it was always meant to be. There's a third reason, and there are probably a lot more, but let me just put this out there. Before you start disagreeing with me in your mind, give me a chance to, uh, to convince you. There are some expressions of sexuality that are gross. One in four women in North America and one in six men in North America will be sexually assaulted at some point in their life. One in four. You tell me that's not gross. You tell me that's not a mismanagement of sexuality, that that's not unfair and unfortunate, that that should not be. There are some expressions that are just plain gross. We're awash in pornography. It is, I mean, like literally any of you in the middle of church could pull out your phone and for free in about six seconds, access any sort you wanted to view. And the truth of the matter is porn dehumanizes people and it creates selfish lovers. We're gonna talk about this in week three. We're gonna talk about selfish lovers versus servant lovers. And I promise you do not wanna miss this message. If you wanna jumpstart your sex life, week three is the week you wanna be here. And pornography ruins your ability to be a servant lover instead of a selfish lover. It's gross. I say it's gross because I'm the one who sits with families when they're struggling. When the wife discovers her husband's secret addiction or when the husband discovers that his wife is looking at things online that he had no idea about. I'm the one that sits there. So you get to watch a glamorized culture where it's no big deal and whatever happens between consenting adults is totally fine. Most people don't sit in the counseling room and deal with the heartache and heartbreak and baggage that comes along with our culture. Speaking of culture, we actually talk about our universities, our government, even in some places in, in religious institutions, of having a rape culture, a rape culture. You tell me that there are not expressions of sexuality that are gross. Come on. We know that it is. The question is, how do we define what's gross and what's not? That's where the debate actually lies. And so we get these ideas that sex is gross either because the church fails to deal with it in a biblical way, because the world deals with it in such an unhealthy, cheap way, and because there are things that people will do sexually, things that may have been done to you sexually that have made you believe that somehow sex itself is bad, it's unhealthy, or it's even sinful. Those ideas do not come from the Bible at all. In fact, the Bible is very, very surprisingly, shockingly pro-body and pro-sex. Let me show you. We're gonna start in Genesis chapter one this morning. And normally the way I do Bible reading on Sundays for sermons is I just kind of read one passage and we'll dig in real deep and stuff. But this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna give you a sampling of the interesting things the Bible has to say about sex, sexuality, and body esteem, all right? I wanna convince you that God is more pro-sex than you are, that the Bible has so many interesting things to say on this subject that hopefully I could transform your heart and mind when you think think about sex if you've always seen it as gross or unspiritual 
or dirty. So if we go to Genesis chapter number one, we read the creation account of men and women. Some of you come from a skeptical background, and so you're here this morning, and you say, uh, I don't know if I believe Genesis, Daniel. I, I uh, come from a scientific perspective, and I don't think I can take that literally. Let me just encourage you to put that to the side for now. Let's engage with what the Bible says, and I'm not going to require you to believe in a literal seven-day creation in order to walk out of here understanding what the Bible says about sexuality. So just roll with me for a sec. In Genesis chapter number one, the scripture says, so God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them both male and female. He created them, Genesis 1.27. If you jump down to Genesis chapter two, verse seven, the Bible says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man, and of course the woman as well, became a living person. Genesis 2.25, look at what the Bible says. Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Can I give you a truth? And I want you to, I don't know, take a picture of it, write it down, just sear it into your mind. You need to realize that naked bodies do not make God uncomfortable. They might make you blush. You might have your own hangups about your body or other people's bodies. But when God created us, he didn't create us with skinny jeans and a button down on. He created us completely and totally naked. I have some friends here from Alabama this morning. In Alabama, they don't say naked, they say naked. And so whether you say naked or naked, that's the way God created you. Your naked body does not make him uncomfortable. God doesn't get freaked out when people are naked or at the thought of naked people. That's a product of our sinful mind, not the product of the holy God who created us. Do you see the scripture says there in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created us that way? He created us without clothing. We were supposed to be open and vulnerable and intimate and to feel no shame, the Bible says, when it comes to nakedness and when it comes to intimacy with the person that we've given ourselves to. Some of you this morning, need to get over your self-esteem and body issues. And I don't mean get over it in a, in a cruel sense, but you need to accept the fact that God created you just the way you are. You are not a mistake. Your body is not a mistake. There may be things that you don't like about yourself, but I want you to understand when God created the original bodies, when he formed you in your mother's womb, he said, this is good. This is good. So you may say like, oh, I wish I was bigger, or I wish I was taller, or I wish I was handsomer, or whatever the case may be. Can you understand that God looks at you and he sees you as lovely? He sees you as the person he made you to be. Stop trying to be everybody else. Just focus on being you. Because your body doesn't cause God grief. Your mama may have said, may have said you know, oh, that part of your body, that's a no-no. Don't think about it. Don't touch it. Don't look at it. Pretend it doesn't exist. But God created it. And that means when it's used well, it's actually used to his glory. God does not get uncomfortable with your naked body. I'll point out another thing that we see from Genesis 1. God created us both body and soul. Body and soul. Soul. Now, this is critical. We are going to come back to this particular point every single week throughout the next month. That God created you both body and soul. You are not a soul who happens to have a body. And you are not a body who happens to have a soul. 
The Bible says God created us as an integrated whole. That is that we are both body and soul and we cannot exist independent of the other. Both body and soul are critical to who you are. That makes you different from animals. Animals are only body and no soul. That makes you different from angels because angels are only soul, but no permanent body. You are this wonderful, beautiful, complex, miraculous hybrid of the physical and the spiritual, and God made you that way. So stop looking at yourself as like, uh, I don't know, I might be a mistake. I'm not happy with this form. I wish I could have something else because if I did, stop thinking, oh, I just want to be spiritual and so I only want to focus on the heavenly things and not the earthly things. Stop. God created you both body and soul and both of them are integral to who you are. Let me show you some other verses here. Genesis chapter number one, we read, God blessed them, Adam and Eve. He blessed them and he said, Now go be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. And then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. Can I give you a principle that we gather from Genesis chapter one, verse 28 here? Humanity was sexual before it was sinful. We were created as sexual beings before we ever became sinful beings. Now you've been told perhaps in church, no, sex is sin. It's dirty. It's wrong. I mean, you can't even do it without sinning. That's not what the Bible says. Do you understand God's first command to Adam and Eve was not don't. It was do. God's first command to our ancient parents was not avoid. It was enjoy. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That's a polite way of saying, go make babies, you guys. You know how this works? Go do it and have a blast. We'll see. We have a dog at our house. I mentioned our big dog the other day, Zelda. We have a small little chihuahua at our house named Yoshi. He's 13 years old. He is well past his prime. But when Yoshi was in his prime, that dog liked to jump on anything that moved, if you know what I mean. He also jumped on things that didn't move. It was just like he had a one-track mind. Now, We used to have to get a squirt bottle out and say, Yoshi, leave it alone, leave it alone. Squirt, squirt, squirt. And so he'd, you know, run away. The first time that Adam climbed on top of Eve, God was not in heaven with the squirt bottle saying, get off of her. He created them to do that. They were actually fulfilling his direct command when that happened. And yet, when it came together, God says, Genesis 1 tells us that both the man and the woman as physical and soul, the man and the woman coming together in pure sexual unity, that that constituted something in God's mind that was very good, very good. Then we get to a turning point. You can read Genesis 3. We're not gonna go through all of it. But what happens is God gave uh, Adam and Eve one particular rule to follow. It had nothing to do with sex or sexuality. It had to do with trusting him and obeying what he uh, asked of them. They decided to break that rule. And we read here in Genesis chapter number three, verses six through seven. So the woman took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. They both broke the trust relationship that they had with God. And the scripture says, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt 
shame at their nakedness. So the Bible says they sewed together fig leaves to cover themselves. God, who created them in a totally intimate and pure relationship, then they violated his command. They suddenly felt shame and nakedness, and the shame and nakedness they felt was over their bodies. Do you understand in this moment, when sin finally enters the world, when sin is present in my heart and in yours, there is a separation, a disintegration of the soul and body oneness that God gave to us. Suddenly, we are no longer soul and body equally, but we tend to look at our soul as one thing and our body as another thing. These are two totally separate things somehow in our mind. That creates shame. It creates heartache, confusion, and it's so interesting to me that when this happened for Adam and Eve, their first response was to cover, to hide, to de-emphasize their bodies. Isn't that fascinating? That sin causes us to see ourselves differently than God sees us. Sin causes us to see our spouse differently than God sees them. And this disintegration causes pain and heartache, and it's been playing out for millennia throughout human history and across all cultures. At some point, this idea of a separated body and soul, it comes into every discussion about sexuality and gender that we have in our world today. So as we address some of the hot button issues in the weeks to come, then I want you guys to understand we're gonna come back to this idea that sin separates you. What was once whole, what was once together, what was once blessed and pure by God, it has been separated because of the sin in our hearts and lives so that we look at ourselves as soul beings or we look at ourselves as physical beings, but we have a lot of trouble seeing ourselves as both. Now, again, the Bible is amazingly pro-body and pro-sex. I'm going to read you three sets of verses here, and some of you need, just, you need to get your fan out and start fanning now because you're going to blush. You can't handle this. You didn't know the Bible said stuff like this. If you got kids, you might want to put a hat or a shirt over their head at this point. This stuff is good, and it's going to shock some of you. If you go to the book of Proverbs, chapter number five, verses 15 through 19. The scripture says this, speaking to men in particular in this passage. It says, drink water from your own well. This is metaphor, so let's see if you can figure it out. Then it gets really, really graphic at the end. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs <clears throat> in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, the Bible says. Let her breasts satisfy you always. Yes, that's a verse you can get behind. Write that on your bedroom mirror. It says, may you always be captivated by her love. And we talked about the four kinds of love that were mentioned throughout the Bible. Which kind of love you think he's talking about here? He's talking about eros. He's talking about romance, the love of a man and his wife. Now that's pretty straightforward, but maybe it's not straightforward enough for you. 
So the Bible gets more direct than that. If you, there is an entire book of the Bible called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon in some translations of the, of the scripture. And it is nothing but a love story between two young lovers, a man and a wife. They just get married and it is erotic poetry. In fact, it's so graphic that young Jewish boys are not allowed to read it until they become bar mitzvah, until they become men. They're not even allowed to look at what it says. I've read through this many, many times. And in preparation for this message, I spent a lot of time reading Song of Songs and I was like, whoa, I forgot it said all of this. This is crazy. I challenge you to go read it for yourself this afternoon. Anything I can do to get you in the Bible, I'm happy, okay? It's this story of romance between a man and a woman. And what's so fascinating about this is throughout the Song of Songs, the woman takes the initiative. She speaks first and she speaks most often. She tends to speak most graphically. Interesting, you make of it what you will. So in Song of Songs 4, the man finally starts speaking and he starts to describe his bride. And he does it very romantically, but he does it graphically. And I'll let you read it on your own, but he starts at the top of her head and he starts working his way south. And so he says, oh, your hair is lovely. It's like this and this and this. He says, your eyes are like pools of water. And he says, your teeth are like newly shorn sheep, which is a weird compliment, but I get it. I get it. I get it. He says, your lips are so beautiful. I just can't wait to kiss them and da, 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 da. He talks about her neck being beautiful, which could be romantic, I suppose. He talks about her shoulders. He speaks very openly about her breasts. He talks about her belly. He calls it a mound of wheat. All right, whatever. Um, <laughs> then he keeps going south. And this man, he describes her thighs. Believe it or not, he describes in great detail what's between her thighs. And like many men, he never makes it past this region. He was going from head to toe and he never got there. Seriously, it just ends. And no lie, you guys, I promise you, you didn't know this stuff was in the Bible. But when you read this passage, the Bible actually narrates their lovemaking, like graphically. Now, they get done. They're laying in the bed, just basking in the afterglow. Seriously, if you read it, they're talking about how much fun they just had. And out of nowhere, a voice appears in chapter number five. You're like, where's this voice coming from? The fascinating thing about this is the voice is the voice of God. And God is not saying to these young lovers, stop talking like that, you guys, that's dirty. Don't talk like that. He's not with the squirt bottle, get off of each other. You're not supposed to be having that much fun. He says, oh, lover and beloved, eat and drink. Yes, drink deeply of your love. I want you to ponder that for a sec. The maker of everything sings over the bed of two young lovers. You thought God hated sex. You thought you were supposed to hate sex in your marriage too. That didn't come from the Bible. Let me give you one more passage here. 1 Corinthians chapter number seven. This is New Testament. We're gonna spend a lot of time here in week number three when we talk about servant lovers. This is what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians seven, you can open up the Bible yourself and read this. A husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. I'm not gonna ask for an amen here, but I can imagine some of you ladies are like, amen. 
understand. And then the Bible says a wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. And it's okay if you say amen there too. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other, the Bible says, of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can devote yourselves more to prayer. This is a fast. You can actually fast from sex, but don't fast forever, the Bible says. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control. Whoa. Those are three examples of dozens and dozens and dozens. I'm telling you guys, you should go read the Bible. There is tons of interesting stuff in there. You didn't know that God spoke this way about bodies and sexuality. You just didn't know. But as we're gonna see over the next few weeks, Christianity has the most robust sexual ethic of any worldview or religion out there. Period. We have the most important and I believe the best, the healthiest things to say on the subject of sex. This should be like an evangelism strategy, you guys. You should go talk to your unchurched neighbors and say, I believe my God created the orgasm. Don't you want to know him? Like we talk about God who created the heavens and we're like, don't you ever just look up and you're like, wow, there's got to be a God. Don't you ever just have intimacy with the person you love and you're like, wow, there's got to be a God. God is not opposed to sex. He's opposed to sinful sex. He's opposed to unhelpful and unhealthy sex. But sex is not in and of itself a bad or a dirty thing. Now, As we move away from sex as gross, like we address that, we confront it. As Christians, we say, no, this is a good gift that was given to me by God and I wanna use it in appropriate ways that glorify him. There will be the temptation for the pendulum to swing too far in the opposite direction. And so it was once that sex was gross and then you got religion and now sex or, you know, whatever. Then you you get um, over here to sex is God. You're like, God says, just be free. Go make love, do what you want to do. No, it's not quite that either. We have this tendency to swing back and forth between extremes. God does give us blessings. He does give us boundaries with sex. And we've got to understand and honor both if we want to experience sex the way it was always meant to be. But can I ask a question? Why is it so hard for us to get right? Why is it so hard for us to get right? Why is it that we tend to view it as gross or we tend to view it as God and we fail to view it as a gift from God? The issues in your life, your primary problems are spiritual and not sexual. You need to kind of just soak this in. Think about it, meditate it, dwell on it. Read what the scripture says. Your primary problems are not sexual. They are spiritual problems. And so part of the reason that you find yourself penduluming back and forth or you find yourself just hardlining to one of the extremes when it comes to sex is because you're trying to only address sex and you're not addressing heart. You're not dealing with the things that are going on deep down inside of you. See, sex is a symptom, but the heart is what really matters. Changing the heart is what has the power to change your sex life, your relational life, your financial life, your spiritual life. Every part of you changes when you change the heart. But until you do that, for as long as you choose to address the symptoms of the problem, 
then you're never going to find the satisfaction, the healing, and the freedom that God always intends for you. If you look at Mark chapter number seven, uh, the, the scripture says Jesus is talking to people and he says to them, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled from what comes within. It's like the things that are inside of you, that's what causes you to be sinful and broken and separated from God. Jesus added, indeed, it's not what comes from the, uh, indeed, it is what comes from the inside that defiles you. For from within, that is out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and a whole bunch of other things that he doesn't take any time to name. He says, all of these things come from within. They are what defile you. See, for a long time, the church has communicated that you are sinful because of what you do with your body. And that's on us. That was a mistake. That's unfair. And it's unbiblical. Because according to the Bible, we aren't sinful because we do sinful things. We do sinful things because deep down inside our hearts are sinful. And so what Jesus offers you is not a new sexual ethic. It's not like technique. It's not a new approach. Jesus doesn't offer you any of that. Instead, what he offers you is a new heart. He offers you the ability to be transformed from the inside outward. And for as long as you try to transform yourself from the outside in, you're going to be unsatisfied. You're not going to be, you're not going to live the life that God wants you to live. Our primary problems are spiritual, not sexual. If you want to jumpstart your sex life as a married couple, if you want to be free from your sexual baggage, if you want to teach your kids a healthy view of sexuality, then it starts with what's in your chest and not what's in your pants. Look at what the Bible says in Ezekiel 36. Last slide, we're going to read this. God is speaking. He says, then I'll sprinkle clean water on you. When you turn to him, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your sin will be washed away. You will no longer worship idols. In the context of this discussion, sex will no longer be God to you. And he says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and I will give you a tender, responsive heart. I will even put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my ways. I don't want you to leave this morning thinking either, oh, God says, go have all the sex you want and that'll fix your problems. Or to say, oh, God wants me to just follow all the boundaries and all the rules that are listed out in the Bible about sex. Both of those extremes will leave you frustrated, unhealthy, further from God. What I want you to do is turn to God and allow him to give you a new heart. We call it being born again. We call it being forgiven. We call it being accepted in Christ. But I want you to have the opportunity to do that because when you see the God who loves you so much that he would create a gift so wonderful as sex, it should cause you to want to turn to him instead of away from him.